The Institute of Directors professional development programmes equip learners with the knowledge, skills and mindset to be enterprising and innovative, enabling organisations to become more productive and competitive. The IOD's programmes ensure directors develop an awareness of their interpersonal skills, legal and business knowledge, financial acumen, ethical questioning, decision-making abilities and the highest standards of professional conduct. The IOD is the only institute in the world to offer internationally recognised qualifications designed by directors for directors under Royal Charter. For more information on IOD training, visit iod.com today. everyone and welcome to the Institute of Directors Scotland Business Podcast, a podcast where we interview directors from all over Scotland about their careers and business. I'm your host, Marlene Lowe, UK Director for Forbite and long-term IOD member. In this week's interview, we speak with Ken Sutherland. Ken shares the story of how he got to being president of Canon Medical Research Europe Limited. And we discuss innovation and culture from across the world and how Scotland can learn from and teach other cultures about attitudes and approaches to management and innovation. Hope you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed having it. Yeah, so it's actually quite interesting background I have, really. I'm, I'm technically an engineer, I guess, yeah. by background. Uh, electronic engineer and software engineer from many years ago. I did my degree and then my PhD, undergrad degree and PhD at, at Edinburgh Uni. Mm-hmm. Um, but the bit I got interested in was not really the engineering bit. I got quite interested in data and particularly I got interested in, in the way that um, images are viewed and I also got quite interested in the way that video is made and a bunch of stuff like that and the patterns within data. And that's kind of been the theme that's that's carried on throughout my career. So um, after my PhD, I left um, left uni and, and, well, I actually did four years postdoctoral research at the uh, University of Edinburgh, but I was actually cited at the Western General Hospital. Yeah. So I was looking at how you would apply the sort of, um, even at that stage, kind of what we would call now data sciences, data analytics tools, to, um, to actually microscopy images. Um, of the brain of people who had uh, neurodegenerative disorders, in particular Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which was the human version of mad cow disease. Mm-hmm. So I spent some time doing that. Um, I actually spent about four years doing that, but then I realized that I really didn't want to be an academic, didn't want to be a researcher, didn't see myself <laughs> as a professor or a lecturer, and wanted to get into business. So <clears throat> decided to, to just basically go out and find a job. I ended up working for, for what was um, a kind of software engineering company, worked for several different companies and ended up now working for Canon Medical, um, which again is, is in the medical domain. I've been doing this for 13 years now. Um, I was in England, spent four years working in Cambridge previously before I came back to Scotland for this job. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> came back specifically for this opportunity for a combination of reasons. It was a good opportunity. Uh, it's The job is based in Edinburgh, a city I love and spent a lot of time in. But I also came back because I was in a relationship with someone who I'm still with, and she was based in Edinburgh. 
And I was in Cambridge at the time, and long-distance relationship didn't really work for either of us. So uh, it was a combination of, of uh, sort of uh, head and heart, if you want to put it that way, uh, the reason to move back. But I definitely haven't regretted that because the business I joined is now part of a major multinational um, Canon, which is the camera company, printer, scanner, document imaging solutions company. A very large global company, Japanese-owned, but a global company in its approach. And one of the fantastic things I love about it is it's a company that moves with momentum. Yeah. It, it believes in engineering excellence as the core of competitive advantage. It believes in research and development and investment in innovation and research and development and believes that it can do that well. And if we do that um, in the right areas and we can innovate in the way that our customers and partners need and want, then we will do well if we do that well. Yeah. So our company slogan is a division, Canon Medical. Our company slogan is made for life. And that's a deliberate uh, policy to be focused on, on basically human welfare mm. and the outlook for individuals, uh, not just us as, as employees, but, but our end customers who are, who are patients of doctors generally. Um, and it's a really interesting place to be. So I've become um, quite divorced from the actual engineering over time. Um, the company I run now is effectively an R&D services company, um, but I'm company president of that, which means I have management, governance, board of directors type level position. So I'm responsible for the organization. It's about 140 people. Um, but throughout my career, I've kind of moved through more technical roles into more product management style roles. Yeah. And then more general management and then ended up basically running what, what is essentially my own outfit, although obviously part of the parent company in Japan, wholly owned subsidiary of the parent company in Japan. So that's really me and, and, and how I kind of got here, I guess. That's a fantastic overview. <laughs> I definitely couldn't give a better overview than that. I think one thing that I noticed um, is that that slogan that you mentioned for Can Medical and it was we develop software that helps save people's lives and we help to make a difference. Yep. I just I thought that was so not just honorable, but it seems to fit into Canon's ethos, the overall Canon ethos Absolutely. as well. Absolutely, yeah. I mean I, I think as I say, we're we're very much a company that thinks about what it is that needs to be done. Yeah. And then tries to apply our innovative and creative uh, energy to that problem, as it were, and then try and solve it. And then if we can do that well, then, you know, we will kind of make money inevitably if you're really good at what you do. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that when we, we, we were in acquisition by what, what, was, what became Canon Medical, um, and I met um, company in Edinburgh wasn't owned by them at the time when I joined, but I met the um, guy who was really our transition manager when we were acquired as part of the company, an American guy uh, called Fred. Um, and he, he met me and he said, uh, if you want to work for a Japanese company, um, you've got to be, you know, you've got to be hardworking, honest and intelligent. And if you're all of these things, you'll do really well. And I kind of reflected on that for a little while and said, well, I'm some of that anyway, at least it's <laughs> enough of that that I can get by. Um, and, and definitely a, a lot of it, um, one of the things I really like about the company is it's a very straightforward company. Um, people genuinely are very honest and they expect honesty and completeness. And, and we don't have um, an organization in which you're kind of constantly negotiating. That's not the way we work. Yeah. There's not a lot of posturing. There's not a lot of company politics. 
It's much more straightforward than that because we talk about the problems that need to be solved and maybe we can solve all of them and maybe we're quite slow in the way we think and make agreements. That's one, maybe one of the frustrating things for, for some of the people who work for us. Um, but nonetheless, when we do decide to do something, we can do it with momentum because we're a big global organisation. I think one of the really exciting things for the team here in Scotland is we can do something very inventive and very creative and very innovative. And as long as we can prove that and we can transition that um, into our parent company in Japan, who, who then integrate generally a software company is what we do so they'll integrate the software we do into the hardware product they manufacture in japan and then they sell it and market it and install it in 150 countries around the world wow so the opportunity is is that if you're a creative data scientist software engineer clinical expert in the team we've got in edinburgh yeah um the innovation you create is then deployed and in use by doctors for patients benefits all over the world essentially yeah. And that's a really interesting, fun thing to be part of. In a way, it's fun to be start of a, part of a small startup, which I've done in my career as well. But you don't have that impact. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a trade. You trade for being part of a bigger company that's maybe a bit slower, a bit less dynamic, a bit less agile. But the impact is potentially much greater if it works. And that's really interesting, particularly in our domain, because... What our immediate parent company makes is hospital scanners, CT scanners, X-ray, ultrasound, MR imaging. And what we do in Edinburgh is a software that, that essentially unlocks that data yeah. and allows it to be usable by the radiologist and, and the other uh, clinical specialisms. And that's a really interesting place to be. Most of the employees are people like me, they're scientific or engineering background or software engineering or whatever. Um, and it's actually a fantastic opportunity for most of us to be part of something that, that again, we can engage with as individuals. Mm. So we're engaging with, with a company that's, that's kind of um, looking to do something worthwhile. Um, but then as individuals, we can be fulfilled by the fact that we're doing something useful. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> so I want to come on to that concept of innovation in a minute, but... I think tied to that is your decision, your personal decision to go into engineering. Yep. Because, yeah. and forgive me on timelines here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, going into engineering, it didn't have, um, it didn't have the, the same, um, how do I put this? The same knowledge of, of what it involves now. Sure. Yeah, so it's interesting. What was that decision uh, to go? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, <laughs> um, my one of the reasons I ended up in the job I'm in today is my parents were both doctors. Mm -hmm. um, so I've always been quite interested in healthcare, but I knew I didn't want to do it yeah. um, from a very early age. Um, and at the stage I was at, um, when, I was, when I was a kid, um, when I was in school and sort of, uh, I guess, early 80s before I left school to go to the university, so early 1980s, that was the time that personal home computing was starting to completely boom. Yeah. So um, people like Sir Clive Sinclair was making the ZX Spectrum and, and products like that when I was a kid, when I was at, still at that kind of teenager, just about to leave to, to go to university age, and the BBC Micro, as it was called. So home computing was suddenly a thing um, at, at probably a mainstream level in truth. Um, and I think that's part of it for me was that I kind of got a bug there about that, you know, the software and actually the link to engineering because the fun bit about software engineering 
certainly when I when I was a student and when I was a, at uni, was that actually what you made potentially was you made little things that then interact with a piece of hardware. So I wrote a piece of software that made a little LED pulse and things like that. I mean, the trivial nowadays, but at the time it felt magic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> software um so yeah no it was an interesting time um different different time I, I think um i guess it was of the time where the potential of technology was was starting to become visible certainly hadn't proven itself and the whole idea that you'd now walk about with a, a smartphone that has the computing power of what would have been a supercomputer only a, a relatively small number of years ago is just astounding and, and absolutely blows you away. I mean, we all carry what we call a mobile phone, but yeah. most of us don't use them as telephones anymore. We use <laughs> them so as a true. computing <laughs> platform, generally speaking, they're a computing platform, or they're our GPS or whatever they are. Yeah. Or the camera. I mean, they're most popular cameras now are smartphones rather than, again, cameras. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, it's, it's an interesting change over time. So you were you were quite at the forefront of this and dare I say a bit of a pioneer when it comes to the link between engineering and software. I, I certainly wouldn't go that far, but but uh, <laughs> certainly an interesting time. I, I wouldn't claim any personal um, credit for that. But I mean, I, again, I was I I think I was very lucky to come to Edinburgh. Mm. Um, I came to Edinburgh Uni uh, again in in the mid eighties at a time where. Already, the uh, informatics and computer science uh, was significant and, and had a, a good pedigree. And the School of Engineering was likewise attracting some fantastic talent. And, yeah. and some of my lecturers were, were brilliant uh, in their field. Um, and the, the research that was going on at the time was, was astounding and, and led to some significant startup companies spinning out of the university. Um, at that time. So it, it was an interesting time where the potential um, what was starting to emerge. And I think, again, I was kind of lucky to, to land in Edinburgh, I guess, where, where that was just happening. So I, I wouldn't claim much credit for myself. I think I was more, <laughs> more lucky to have landed in the right place at the right time to some extent. I like that concept, right place, right time. So the when it comes to innovation, do you feel like you've always been in that innovation Hubs, yeah, I think that part of it, part of the engineering thing is that there's um, engineers are fundamentally problem solvers. Mm. Um, but the problem solving the problem theoretically isn't really enough. Um, you've got to solve it for real, and and that's for me what I what I now understand is all about the translation of innovation. Yeah. Um, it's all about the, the usefulness and the impact that the innovation have, has. And that's, I guess, ultimately why I never was going to be an academic because that part of it wasn't enough for me. I wanted to see what I was doing in real use and delivering real value. Mm. Um, and so it was that personal opportunity to be able to take something from that good idea stage. Um, and I think one of the things I've learned over my career is it, it, it's it's often... And this 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 maybe sounds a bit harsh, and, and maybe not not everybody would agree with this. But to some extent, some of the good ideas are actually quite easy. What's yeah. really difficult is converting that good idea into something that people can actually use and actually <laughs> works, and actually works every time you pick it up. I mean, if you again back to your smartphone, if you picked it up and you have to reset it every four hours or something like that and turn it off and on not acceptable we all yeah. kind of accept that sometimes you have to turn these things off and on occasionally or they don't work but not not regularly and so the real engineering challenge the good idea is making it work once 
the engineering challenge is making it work a thousand times regularly without having to be reset and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. it's that translation bit that's actually got me more interested in, or that I've got more interested in over time. The innovative bit, the creative bit, is quite interesting. I've got my own theories about the best conditions for that to happen and how all that can work. Um, but actually, some of the magic is then translating it into a useful solution to a problem. Yeah. So I noticed as well that you are a fellow. Yeah. How did that come about? How did you become a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh? So I, I changed, it's really interesting. I, I, I got approached, the, the process is you basically get nominated by an existing fellow. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that's happened over the time that I've been back in Edinburgh since I was away is I've got more engaged with the broader community and life sciences sector. Um, Partly because it is interesting, we're right at this um, kind of convergence between technology and life sciences. And the opportunity is if you can work with people who maybe don't speak, almost don't speak the same language as it were, because they come from a, they're scientists, but they come from a completely different domain. The opportunity for us to work together and create useful innovation that then has value for healthcare or NHS or personal uh, patient care, whatever it might be, or even social care or whatever. Um, that, that opportunity has been quite interesting to me. And I, I, my theory about innovation is if you put people from different domains together, that's where you get a creative spark because you're taking people who wouldn't normally interact and you force them to interact together. So I made a deliberate move when I came back to Edinburgh to get quite involved in the life sciences sector, which is very vibrant in Scotland, actually. There's a lot of companies working in life sciences. Uh, You see here, um, specifically in the east of Scotland, you see a lot of it. There's a lot of technology, partly in the universities, but also partly in the company base. There's there's a lot of innovators, a lot of really smart people doing really exciting stuff. And I've got more into that over time. And I've met quite a few people who are really very experienced in that area. And, and it was one of these people um, who, who put me forward for a fellowship with the Royal Society of Edinburgh. Um, I got involved in a couple of the, the projects they were working on. Um, And actually, one of the areas that really does interest me is back to this translation bit about innovation. One of the areas that's interesting to the Royal Society of Edinburgh is is round about the interplay between what happens in academia and then what happens in the wider world and how you transition stuff out of that. And and so I, I felt that certainly when I was approached and asked to get involved, I felt it was something that I could help contribute to as well. Yeah. Um, because the work of, of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, a lot of it is round about that. What, you know, what, is, what does the future look like? And, and, and the, the best way to foretell the future is, is to shape it, is, as, as people say. Uh, and that's, that's what I think um, is trying to happen here in Scotland. And it's quite exciting. And the chance to meet with some amazing people. Mm-hmm. I think the other part of it is that actually our, my company that, that I work for, Canon, um, it's also a corporate partner of the Royal Society of Edinburgh. And again, that was a deliberate decision by us because we want to tap into that broader network yeah. of creative people. And again, recognising that, that, I mean, you know, we, as I, as I mentioned, the, the majority of our staff are kind of software engineering, data sciences, some people from a clinical background, but mostly coming from one, mainly coming from the same kind of perspective. And one of the things I'd like to do is to to encourage them and to force some of the, myself included, 
into this kind of collision zone with other people so that we can come <laughs> up with interesting ideas for, for future innovation that might be incredibly disruptive yeah. for, for particularly healthcare, but also potentially other areas. That's something I've noticed quite a lot since moving to Scotland is, or certainly the circles I've been in, is that there is this thirst for innovation and progression for, for the nation as a whole, but also individuals and businesses. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it's like that in Scotland specifically? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, it, it's, it's difficult, um, d- difficult to, to know, really. Um, I guess one of the things I observe is, is that to some extent the barriers are lower, so maybe it just happens more. Um, and, and what I mean by that is it's relatively easy to get um, a number of relevant people kind of in a, okay, maybe we can't do it at the moment in the middle, middle of the crazy <laughs> pandemic, but in normal times you can get some of the people you need to talk to all in a room together. Yeah. And you can discuss what you're trying to do. I mean, and that might be a combination. Um, I, I'm, I'm quite a fan of, of what some people describe as the triple helix model of innovation, where you get uh, academics, government organizations, and commercial organizations working together to, mm-hmm. to create innovative solutions. And in our space, that's the combination of NHS, academia, and business relevant life sciences and tech industries. Um, and what's possible here in Scotland, I think, is it's relatively easy to bring significantly senior people in each of these different areas and in each of these three different strands and get them together. And yeah. if we focus on Scotland and the scale of Scotland, so the sort of five point something million population or whatever it is, um, if we think about that as a kind of problem space almost, if we think about that's, the, that's what we're trying to impact, it is possible to impact. Yeah. It is possible to get the right sort of leader in the room together. Um, it is possible to get the right set of people willing to work together and just to get on and do it. So I think it's partly just that it is possible. And yeah. I think the barriers to preventing it are lower. Um, I think um, I think it's interesting. I mean, the, the comparison is probably the southeast of England and, and the, the golden triangle, as they call it, between London and Oxford and Cambridge. Um and that area is amazingly creative and innovative and, and has a lot of energy. But again, a lot of that is, is proximity, is that people are really quite close together and can do the same as, as I've just been describing. So I think a lot of it is proximity yeah, and, yeah. and willingness just to get together. And I think the thing that makes it particularly manageable here in Scotland is, again, if, if you talk about the sector we, we work in, which is healthcare, it is possible to meet and talk to senior NHS people in Scotland who've got responsibility for, for uh, you know, certain aspects of the NHS at, at national level for yeah. all of Scotland. And so when you do sit down and speak to these people and they say, well, yeah, of course, we'll try and do X. Yes, we can work with you on, on Y or whatever it is. Then that's brilliant. It, it's going to be very difficult to get that in England because yeah. you've got a much bigger population, a bigger group of people, but then inevitably more fragmented. So it's that opportunity to work at actually a slightly less fragmented level. It's really quite interesting. So going back to Canon, um, one thing that fascinates me with Japanese companies is, is their culture. And you touched upon this as well, their ethos and their work ethic. Um, do you feel like that's easy to replicate throughout the world or... Has it been yeah. a bit of a challenge? I think I think it's it, it is a little bit challenging. I think it's one of the things I've learned, mm. uh, and it's one of the things I've enjoyed actually about this job. It, is it, it's taken me 
or it's kind of forced me to think in slightly different ways and take different approaches. And I think they've benefited me overall. One of the things I notice about my own personal management style is I think I listen a lot more than I used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's partly just the style, certainly the style of meetings with a Japanese company are, are quite muted compared to working for a US company, which is a bit rah, 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 <laughs> or the boss goes, yeah, let's all do this and we all go that. And I work for a US company, so I kind of know that, that that to some extent That's is the true. truth. Um, so it is, it, is, it is different. It's much more understated. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is that a lot of um, a lot of effort goes into building consensus, mm-hmm. and and what that is means it, it feels almost like endless discussions happen. But the process is that, that if someone's got quite a radical idea, and they're working with a group of other people to try and uh, get their agreement, what happens is you get this gradual kind of grinding where eventually you get to a point where everybody kind of agrees and then you can push forward. Whereas I think what happens very often in in British companies or American companies or whatever is you don't really get to that point, but you push it forward anyway because you've just got to push forward and then it sometimes doesn't work. And so certainly the model seems to be that if you take everybody's concerns on board early on, when you've got a radical approach, a radical new product concept or a different way of working or a major change management project, whatever it might be, if you take everybody's views into consideration and you take the time to listen to them and to take on their concerns, you can't necessarily please every. you know, we can never please everybody. Yeah. At least you've listened to them, you've tried to take on board what it is their concern is. When the final decision is made, they're much more likely to be receptive to it and supportive of it because they've had their chance to input at least. And so that's one of the differences I see. It's quite difficult to mimic because it's it's very, um, you know, it's very high bandwidth discussion. Mm. It involves a lot of discussion, a lot of, um, you know, I get, I've got Japanese guy working for me now who's on secondment from Japan for two years as part of our leadership team to the organization in Edinburgh. Um, and he, we've got a really good working relationship. He's is English is excellent. Works really. We work really well together. But one of the things I notice is he spends a lot of time working through things with his colleagues over the phone and over calls like this with yeah. colleagues in Japan. Which I think have we not all agreed that already? Can we not just yeah. do we need to? But it seems like almost as each. Each tiny little increment has to be discussed and agreed, each tiny little increment. Um, And so that is different, I think, in style and doesn't necessarily translate. Um, Although one of the things I noticed from certainly Canon's approach is they don't want us to be a Japanese company. They want us to be a Scottish company owned by a Japanese parent company. Um, And their worry is if we adopt too much of their approach, then maybe we'd lose some of our own creative spark is, is their concern. Because one of the reasons why they're interested in a company like us based in Scotland is that we are innovators. We do create useful, disruptive, um, wholly novel approaches and ideas. Mm. Um, And rightly or wrongly, my colleagues in Japan believe that some of what we do, they could never do and they would never do. Um, And that's evidenced, you know, by the organization here. As I mentioned, you know, under our current guys, we were acquired... Um, so over uh, 11 years ago now, we were acquired uh, by what was then um, Toshiba Medical, became Canon Medical. Mm-hmm. And in terms of headcount, in terms of the core research development organization, we were about 90 people 
with okay. with the R&D team and, and its support functions. We're now about 140 people, so half as much bigger again. Okay, that's a long time frame, and we're not 500 people or 5,000 people or whatever. But nonetheless, it's definitely growth. Yeah. And it's definitely an endorsement of the fact that, or, or evidence of the fact that we must be doing something right here such that they want us to continue to do it. And they, in fact, they want to continue us to do more of it. Yeah. Very often happens in companies like ourselves when they're acquired by a foreign multinational. What the company's actually after is the intellectual property. They want the ideas. They maybe want the prototype. They maybe want the software. Not too worried about the people. That's the opposite case here. Canon certainly was interested in what we had and our assets, but they were also interested in the future capability of the organization we've got. Yeah. And my job is to continue to um, you know, recruit and retain the specialists we've got who are able to do this sort of stuff for us. That's quite forward thinking of them, isn't it? It's a, it's, is it a different approach to what people usually do to actually want to keep on the knowledge base and continue establishing that and growing that? Yeah, I think so. Although, I mean, we're not, we're not the only case, actually. And the example yeah. of, I don't know what, what it is specifically, but, but, but um, there definitely seems to be something between Scotland and, and Japan that works reasonably well, yeah. because there are definitely other examples. I mean, there are other significant Japanese companies operating in Scotland. I mean, Nikon now mm-hmm. own business that, that is still called Optos and, and Fermlin. Um, Terumo, who are a major another life sciences company in Japan, have, have operations here in Scotland. And there are several other examples um, in, 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 in life sciences, but not just in life sciences and other technology areas as well, yeah. where, where I think particularly between Japan and Scotland, that there's, there's, I don't know, for whatever reason, there's an acceptance and a way of working that seems to work. I think part of it's whiskey, part of it's probably <laughs> golf, part of it's probably rugby, um, you know, maybe maybe all of these things are important, but but I don't know. Maybe maybe it's maybe it's the way we work. Maybe it's maybe it's that you know intelligence, hardworking, honest thing going on. I don't know. Yeah, I, it wouldn't surprise me if it is a lot to do with the hardworking. The cultures seem to fit quite yeah. nicely together. Yeah. There's a yeah. um, I'm going to get the word wrong. Symbiosis. Sim- yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things that, that I notice is is that um, it, it, it's funny. There's a there's quite a lot of mutual respect um, mm. between colleagues here and, and colleagues in Japan, uh, and just the way of working. Um, I think there's other things that are interesting. I mean, the, the, the Japanese culture is very different. I mean, I, I'm privileged. I, I have in the past, hopefully able to do again in the future, been able to visit Japan quite regularly. Yeah. Um, over the last sort of twelve years, and um, during that time, I, mean, I feel I've learned quite a lot about Japanese culture, and 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 I enjoy being in Japan. I think it's it's a really interesting country. It's a really interesting society. Um, it's um, I mean the food's marvelous. Um, the sceneries are beautiful in, in certain areas, uh, and the people are very friendly, and and you yeah. feel very safe. Um, it, it, it's very, um, you know, it, it's really quite different in a way from 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 some of what we see here. Mm. Um, and and it, it's interesting. I mean, it, I think there's 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 some, although there's something in there that that allows. I don't know whether it's particularly Scottish or whether it's British or, or whatever it might be, but there's certainly something here that works 
um, for these companies. Or, you know, as I say, we're not the only example, so there must be some pattern here that's repeatable. <laughs> and hopefully repeatable for others as well. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that's interesting for other companies, um, whether it's specifically in our sector in life sciences or whether it's tech or whatever it might be, or even fintech or future areas that, that people might be in. Um, there's no reason why um, that model wouldn't be repeatable where, where a company ends up being acquired or having a Japanese parent company. And then even though it's just a subsidiary that's here in Scotland, they can't continue to grow as, as we have. And as, as a, there are other examples. So one thing that I'd like to ask you, and it's, it's a bit of a two-parter here. Um, we've talked about Scottish culture, Japanese, American. What is something that Scottish leaders and, and business owners could learn from both the Japanese and the American way of doing business? But also, what could we teach them? What is something that we are particularly good at that we could teach them? Yeah, these really good questions. I wish I wish you'd given me some advance warning to think about <laughs> these, these ones. Um, so I think that there's an approach, um, there's a determination, actually, um, that is really interesting. So, so the... the um, there's a Japanese thing about perseverance mm -hmm. and about almost never giving up. And, and sometimes to the point of going, what on earth are you doing? You know, is that really worth, even worth doing? And, and sometimes we might give up. Um, and that's one of the things that, that's really interesting, I observe, in Japanese culture. And it's actually true in US culture as well. You, you get a strong, you know, we're not, we're not going to give up on this thing. This is, we're a team. We're going to do this. Yeah. So that's one of the things I see. I think one of the differences I see, particularly between U.S. and, and, and Japanese culture, is that um, U.S. is really much more individualistic. Mm -hmm. um, and individual success is much more important than, than company or family or organizational success. Uh, within Japanese uh, business culture today, still at least, there's a lot of loyalty to your employer. Yeah. And relatively low attrition and transfer I mean, people, a lot of people still, even at my sort of age um, and, and younger, will only or may only work for one company during their working career. Wow. Um, which is pretty unusual for us nowadays, yeah. um, if not unheard of, probably. Um, and that's really interesting. It, 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 it's a slightly different contract between uh, informally, not, not, the, not the paper contract or the legal contract, but there's a slightly inf different informal contract between the employer and the, and, and the employee in that situation because to some extent employers in Japan, Japanese culture are a bit more paternalistic probably. Okay. Um, and that's, that's the opposite for, for US companies. I mean, it, yeah. you know, people transfer very quickly. They'll leave their job very quickly if they feel the wind's blowing in the wrong direction. And likewise, company can be quite brutal about shedding staff if, mm. if things are not going well. Whereas, to be honest, I think Japanese culture and Japanese business approach is to try and hold on. Uh, I mean, for example, in the middle of, of the situation we're in at the moment with the, the COVID pandemic, um, the direction we're getting and I'm getting from our company leadership in Japan is that um, we're a healthcare company. We're a technology company working in healthcare. Um, healthcare is going to need more of what we do yeah. at the end of this. Uh, so we need to come out strong. Yeah. And so we need to continue to invest in research and development and innovation 
so that we come out of this as a company strong, but also able to deliver the innovation and the products and the technology that our customers and partners need. Yeah. Um, and we'll only do that. And again, the direct instruction I'm getting from my boss in Japan is the only way we can do that is to maintain a well-motivated team of experts who are creative and, and have the skills and tools and assets to allow them to be able to do that, that creative work. Yeah. So it's very much a long-term approach um, from our Japanese parent company. Again, slightly different, I think, for in most cases now from, from US culture, which is a bit more short-termist. And, and here as well uh, in the UK is also a bit more short-termist. So that's the differences and, and some of the things we can learn. So I think we can learn from the long-term approach. I certainly think we can learn from... Um, the kind of loyalty thing, uh, I think it's quite interesting. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's interesting situation at the moment it, it, here just now with this pandemic. I mean, companies companies are really struggling and trying very hard to hold on to their best staff. Mm. Um, we, we're in a good situation, but many other companies are struggling. And I think it's amazing to see what, what people are doing, which is great. Um, I think one of the things for us certainly is that I think um, – Certainly some of our colleagues can learn. It's about the thing I was talking about before, about the collaboration between different styles of organization. Um, I think if you can bring people together, um, again, in our case, it's slightly unusual, obviously, with the NHS, but, but if you can bring people together from different styles of organizations and you can work together to solve a problem, then you're much more likely to come up with a lasting solution that's really useful. Yeah. If you sit in a bubble and you create a piece of tech, sometimes that's, that's I think, the risk. And, I, and I, you see this a little bit in, in um, actually, you see this a little bit in U.S. tech companies where they kind of invent the product they want themselves. Yeah. And then they kind of go, but why doesn't it work everywhere? You know, <laughs> you know I mean, well, but, you know, you take, well, for example, I've got an iPhone um, and I, my mother and I have got a holiday home on the Isle of Skye in the Highlands of Scotland. I go there on my phone and my signal's rubbish most of the time. I don't have 4G. I sometimes have some 3G. Um, Wi-Fi in, in the house I stay in is not very good. You know, all that sort of stuff. And yet the product is now, the iPhone is now set up really to, it really needs to be online almost all the time or is pretty yeah. much useless. Um, and that's because they've developed it for that world. I mean, the world in California is that you have saturation network coverage. Yeah. And therefore you expect it. So you expect to be online. Everybody's online all the time. But so that's one of the things I think if, if people invent things in a bubble without thinking about what it is their users really need, then that's a missed opportunity. I think, as I mentioned, one of the things we're quite good at here in Scotland is understanding what our users need. I think yeah. or we have the opportunity to connect with them anyway, but again, because we're small, um, and, and I, again, one of the interesting things in Scotland is I think you see diverse uh, requirements across the population. You've got a population that's different. You've got people living in cities. You've got people living in very rural areas. If you think about technology, the needs of people living in cities and the needs of people living in rural areas can be radically different. Definitely. Um, and the needs of, of them in terms of, you know, a whole range of products in terms of, you know, um, mechanical products, um, different systems they might have, different software systems, you know, they can be radically different depending on where they live. And in a relatively small space with a relatively small population, we've still got quite a lot of different uh, opportunities to innovate, I think is quite interesting. Yeah. So 
going back to what you said about the loyalty, what can we do to start creating and foster? What what have you noticed during the past? Yeah, so again, it's I think it's something that's kind of happening um, mm-hmm. over time, and and in a way, companies are having to reinvent, or certainly some styles of companies are having to reinvent the employment contract between themselves and their employees, partly because of this situation, a lot of people working from home, uh, which is a change. So as an employer, you have to be much more trusting. Um, If you don't trust your staff, you certainly can't let them all work at home. (laughs) If you don't trust your staff, what on earth are you doing? You know, so um, that's part of it. But also, I think, again, I'm, I'm... I'm an old guy in his 50s. I mean, I don't understand what, what young people want necessarily. But um, the expectations of the next generation um, are different mm. now, very different in terms of, the, you know, a, a career, a job, um, work-life balance, um, meaningful contribution, um, you know, uh, support for, for the environment, all of these sorts of things. The attitude from staff today compared to, you know, a new start working for us today who's a new graduate, that person's outlook is going to be completely different from mine when I started work 25 years ago in my first job. And my expectations of my employer would have been very different from theirs of of us now. Mm -hmm. Um, And so companies are having to change. And one of the most useful pieces of advice I've ever been given as a manager is treat your staff as volunteers. Um, Because they, you know, if you treat them as volunteers then that's the trade. And because they could up and leave. And if you don't treat them well, they will up and leave. Yeah. Because if you imagine it's just the money that's keeping them there, then that's a pretty low, you know, that's a pretty low step. It's a pretty low bar. Exactly. It's a pretty low bar to get over. If if that's the only thing keeping them, then that's rubbish. Mm -hmm. So imagine they're volunteers. Imagine they're not getting paid. What is it they want to get out of it? They want to trust their boss. They want to know what they're doing. They want to see how their input is is contributing. They want to get a fair reward for what they're doing. They want it to be treated well. They want to get a chance to grow and develop and and all that sort of thing. And, and, you know, some social stuff and a whole pile of different things like that. (laughs) So employers now have to change their approach to build loyalty. Um, Certainly in the tech sector, because there aren't enough people around for all the problems that need to be solved. Um, And so actually talent is in demand. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, to some extent, if you're a really good whatever it is, I don't know, you know, data scientist, whatever it might be, that's particularly on on in vogue at the moment, um, you can you can decide who you want to work for. It's not the other way around. You can decide who you yeah. want to work for. So you work for the employer who's got the best package and best opportunity. But it's not just about the finances. It's about have they got the right approach to flexible working? Have they got the right approach to diversity? Have they got the right approach to the environmental impact of their business? Do they care about me as an employee? Yeah. And that's what the loyalty is about. That's what the paternalistic approach that kind of described in Japanese business culture is kind of like. And so actually, <clears throat> I think we've become much more like that as a company as Canon Medical here in Scotland. Yeah. I think my management style, I mean, without being paternalistic, I don't, I don't tell people what to do. I'm not their <laughs> dad. Um, but we are, we are, we absolutely think about what we're trying to do. And again, I mean, you know, we were in a lucky situation compared to, to others, I guess. But, you know, we've made choices. Like, we've made a choice not to furlough any staff. 
You know, we've made a choice to continue to invest in certain areas. We made a choice to invest in our partnerships with students and to bring forward the next generation. We've made choices about being very active in the STEM movement, you know, the science, technology, engineering, maths, and, and, and encouraging staff to spend time out, obviously, when they can, and it's safe to do it, but out in schools and, and encouraging the next generation. We've made choices to support these sorts of initiatives, developing young workforce, all these sorts of things. These are things that we're doing in knowledge and consideration of our, our place and, and our, our, our responsibilities mm-hmm. um, within society and the community generally. But it's also partly because that's what our staff expect of us now as an employer. Um, and so we have to adapt. And so I think as I, I'm very much aware of the fact that the, that this trade, this informal contract between staff and employer is changing and has changed. Yeah. And, and employers have to adapt to that. And it's certainly not all about the money. That's, uh, it's so nice to hear that. It's nice, nice to hear that, that you've adopted that long-term plan and the, the giving back to the community. Sure. It's, it's yep. something, again, I've noticed a lot in Scotland. And I love it. I love that there's that cross-collaboration between education and business and how more and more people, companies, institutions are really grasping onto that. Um, if we could go to the tech sector very quickly, um, because Edinburgh is, or certainly the East coast of of Scotland is very tech heavy with university in Dundee, um, Edinburgh, Code Clan, all of that. What do you feel we could do to fill that gap and to, to get more people involved in engineering and software and and wanting to come into that industry? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I think I think it's I think much of it was already happening. It's just taking time. Yeah. I think one of the things that that has to happen is the successes that others have had need to be recycled and and, yeah. and need to be repeated. So you know, the successes of of companies like Skyscanner and FanDuel and people like that. The, the people who've been successful in these companies need to come out of these companies, which they have done, get involved in other companies, help mentor other people, help fund other people to do exciting stuff and to recycle. So for every one or two that we've had like that, we've got to have 10 or 20 in the next generation. And then in the next generation, that becomes hundreds potentially. Yeah. And I think that that's where it gets quite exciting. Um, I think there's much talked about, you know, by more experienced people than me about, about the mechanics and the support systems that are required to, to, to help these companies to work. And I, I think some of that already exists. You know, I'm a big fan of things like the, the code base approach and things like that. I, 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 can, I can see it really working. Um, and, and that's great. I think one of the interesting things about the tech sector is it, it is it is potentially global very quickly if you've got a good idea. Yeah. Um, then you can access a global market. Things like, uh, well, you know, things like app store models, but also things like uh, cloud computing platforms and things like that. If you've got value in your tech, then you can probably deploy it to a, quite a big market opportunity quite quickly. If 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 you're if you know your stuff and if you're if you're in the right sector, yeah. so I think the barrier to entry is maybe a little bit lower. And, and therefore, the location you're in doesn't necessarily matter that much. So I think that's an opportunity for Scotland. I think what we need to do is just build, double down on the clusters that already exist um, and, and try and foster that, that clustering mentality um, because a lot of it is about momentum. We don't want people to leave Scotland. We want people who are interested in these sectors to stay here and to see that they've got opportunities because 
you know, they, they will want to change company, they will want to grow, they will want to develop, they want to work for different people, they might want to work in a different city. Um, they've got that opportunity. I mean, I, I live in Broughty Ferry, so I, I work in Edinburgh, I live in Broughty Ferry. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, who knows what the future holds for me personally, but it's, it's great that, you know, there's lots of companies in Dundee, you know, who knows where I'm, I'm going to end up, who knows where any of us are going to end up. There are opportunities uh, for all of us, and I think we all need to see that, otherwise we, you know, we, we won't be able to continue. Yeah. Well, the last question before I leave you. Um, one thing I've noticed with the Institute of Directors and members of the Institute of Directors is their passion for learning more for themselves and improving on their own skill sets. Um, so I wanted to ask you, where where do you want to see yourself in, say, two years' time? Yeah, it's interesting. Two, two years' time, I, I, I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm terrible for career, personal career planning. Um, <laughs> I, think, I think the things I want to get better at mm-hmm. um, is that uh, I think I'm still learning as a director, in truth. Um, yeah. I, I think I'm, you know, I've, I've been a director of, of this current company for, for several years now. I've been involved in some other uh, external opportunities where I've been a director and I'm involved in a charity as well, um, and I'm on the court of Glasgow University as well. Um, so uh, uh, one of the things I want to do is, is to get better at all of that and the mechanics <laughs> of all of that. Um, I think a lot of that is learning from others. So the community that is the Institute of Directors is really important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also done some training. I've done some training in Scotland with, with the IOD Scotland events. Uh, I've met some interesting people through that. Uh, some of the trainers, but also some of the other people on the courses have been really inspiring. Yeah. Um, one of the things I'm inspired by is, is is that I think it's very easy to see the world from your own perspective all the time. Um, and it's really interesting because I, I can't remember which, I think I did a strategic planning workshop. And I, did it, I didn't have anything particular in mind. It was just a one-day IOD workshop, I think. I think it was uh, David Fraser's one's. And um, the group of people I met was really interesting because some of them were from a family-owned business. Some of them, you know, one guy was essentially a much smaller business on his own. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm working for a major major multinational. There were other people in a similar situation. Um, But everybody brought something different. The problems they had were very different. The visions of their companies in the future were very different. And I was inspired by that and I learned from it. Um, and, And so that's... Basically, I want to learn from other people's experiences, probably probably my objective. I think the other thing I still do in terms of learning development is I still try and stay up to speed with where technology is going at, at a certain level. Um, and that's just so I can personally understand the opportunities that are coming. Yeah. So I still go to trade shows myself. Um, and I don't just spend all my time speaking to customers of ours. I spend time walking around talking to startups and talking yeah. to them about what they're doing and what they might be thinking about doing. I sit in lectures, sitting to thought leaders, talking about what the future holds. And I go back and I think about it and I think, mm, yeah, we, that's really relevant to us as a company. Yeah. And not, you know, people in my position don't always find the time. I mean, I'm lucky and I can, I mean, I've got a brilliant team around me and I can find the time to do this. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but I think without that, it, it would harm my ability to, to, you know, be able to think for the future. Yeah. And to be stimulated to do that by, by going out and meeting other people. Yeah.